Chapter Sixteen of Thou Art the Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thou Art the Man by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Sixteen. In the Gray Distance half a life away sir joseph and his daughter had been at home nearly a month and the grouse were being slaughtered on the moors lord penrith was at the castle with a small party of shooters and had ridden over to ellerslie twice within a week and on his second visit had lunched alone with sir joseph a visit that had lasted late into the afternoon the two men strolling up and down the terrace after luncheon smoking their cigars sir joseph's infantas and harry clay's were famous among his friends and talking confidentially urquhart had been at ellerslie on neither occasion indeed penrith had made a point of his brother stopping to represent him with the shooters i didn't know you cared about sir jay said urquhart sulkily when he heard of the second visit to ellerslie i don't know what you mean by caring sir joseph is a shocking old bounder but as good as gold and if one didn't consort with bounders nowadays one would have to take to a cavern in the desert <laughs> but you are so exclusive sneered urquhart and you care so little about society you could afford to do without the bounders no doubt i could in a general way but i can't afford to do without sir joseph higginson i like the man and i like his cigars and i like his daughter oh exclaimed urquhart with a sudden drop of his lower jaw that's the way the land lies is it yes answered penrith that is the way have you any objection objection of course not the younger must give way to the elder i am no jacob penrith laughed a short dry laugh as he st stepped lightly into his high dog-cart poor hubert well he had had long innings with the heiress and it was penrith's turn now the fortress might be invincible but putting a woman's fancy out of the question and it was evident that miss higginson had no fancy for urquhart the suitor who could offer a coronet must have the better chance he had found sir joseph a broken man it was less than a year since they had met and it seemed to him that ten years of an ordinary lifetime could have made no more marked alteration in the old man's appearance and physique penrith knew that in dealing with so shrewd a man as joseph higginson any beating about the bush would be useless he had not finished his first cigar on this second visit before he came to the point 
and offered himself as a suitor for Miss Higginson. "'My title is one of the oldest in the north of England,' he said. "'I won't say anything about my estate, for as the bulk of my property is near your own, I dare say you know its value as well as I do. I have suffered, as most people have suffered, from the fall in rents, but not to such an extent as some landowners. I don't pretend by any means to be a rich man, but the Penrith property is a fine property and only needs the outlay of a few thousands here and there in restoration and improvement houses gardens parks have gone to seed for the want of ready cash my house in barclay square for instance a house in a walled garden one of the few old-world houses left in london my wife might make a very pretty figure in the world if she had a fortune of her own and still more if she were young and beautiful as your daughter is she might be a leading light among the very best sir joseph's wan face brightened he did not love lord penrith that hard urquhart manner has, had always repelled him but so far as he knew penrith was a man of reputable character such dark things as had been said of hubert urquhart had never in Sir Joseph's hearing been said of the Earl. It was known that he had tried and failed to marry wealth on more than one occasion, but that failure could hardly be considered disgraceful. Sir Joseph wanted a coronet for his daughter. Last year, perhaps, strong in the bold ambition of a self-made man, he might have considered this particular coronet hardly good enough. He might have aspired to ducal strawberry leaves, or at least to rank allied with more prosperous fortunes than that of Penrith. But since that calamity of last May, a weariness of life had come upon him, and he wanted to see his daughter married as soon as possible he was perfectly frank with his visitor only six months ago i was looking forward to sibyl's first season with a good deal of pleasure he said i loved to think of the splash she would make in society with her fresh young beauty and her expectations i wanted to see her admired and followed and to pick the best man among her followers but I'm not so keen upon next year as I was a little time ago. I'm breaking up, Penrith. I fancy my race is nearly run. I suppose I used to think myself immortal, for I was always castle-building about the future, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren even. I thought I might live to see new generations. God knows what I thought. Ridiculous in a man of seventy. Well, that's over. And now I'm anxious to see my daughter settled, as people call it, before the curtain falls. That dark curtain comes down unexpectedly sometimes, especially where a man has worked his brain as I have worked mine. 
of fibre snaps, and the tale is told. Penrith murmured some soothing remark about a fine constitution, a green old age. Men live well into the nineties nowadays, he said. Some men do. I shan't, answered Sir Joseph briefly. I've had the tap of constable death on my shoulder, and the notice to move on. If Sybil likes you well enough to be your wife, Lord Penrith, likes you as well as her mother liked me when we married, why, I will back your suit, and I will make such a settlement as will secure her fortune against all contingencies, but which will not be illiberal towards you. There shall be margin enough of available capital to restore the family seat in the house in town, and to improve every homestead and cottage and every acreage on your estate. If she can but like you, that's the question. I hope it may not be impossible for me to win something even better than liking, said Penrith with a stately air. It ought not to be a hopeless task if the young lady's affections are disengaged, and I take it that in the retirement of Ellerslie she is hardly likely to have met anyone worthy of her notice. No, no, she is heart-whole, I have no doubt, Sir Joseph answered somewhat confusedly. She was terribly upset at the trouble we had here last May, our poor Marie's death, and Mountford's arrest. Mountford is a kind of cousin of my daughter's. A dreadful business altogether. She misses her adopted sister. She has not been the same girl since, and any more than I have been the same man. Neither of us can forget. Penrith looked at him keenly at that mention of Mountford, and then, in a cold, incisive tone, he said, a shocking business indeed sir joseph i conclude that there can be no doubt of mountford's guilt so far as an epileptic can be held guilty of a crime committed in a paroxysm of his disease i don't know about that indeed i am very doubtful i should never have believed in his guilt if he had not broken out of jail till i heard of his getting away like that I could have staked my life upon his innocence. But if not he, who could the murderer have been? God knows, some roaming devil who might have murdered her for the sake of her trinkets, a gold bangle, a diamond ring I gave her on her last birthday and which she always wore. The fact that the trinkets were not taken proves nothing, for the murderer might have been surprised by Brandon's appearance on the scene. They told me he was kneeling by the body, taken red-handed. Anyone who came accidentally upon the spot and touched my poor girl's blood-soaked gown, as I believe Brandon did, would have been red-handed as he was. That proves nothing. The only suspicious circumstance to my mind is his running away. Mighty suspicious. Painful story altogether, Sir Joseph. 
i am sorry for lord allandale and the family i need hardly say that i am still more sorry for you and your loss of a dependent you are fond of in such a tragic manner my loss of a dependent yes of whom i was fond a dependent i dare say that you have heard people speculate upon the relations between marie arnold and me penrith shrugged his shoulders in languid assent people will talk he said i am the last to trouble myself about what the world says in print or by word of mouth people may have said that i should hardly have been so fond of a mere dependent and that marie arnold must have been my daughter ah that is the kind of thing people always say well in this case they were right she was my daughter penrith bent his head gravely i am flattered by your confidence and your directness he murmured you're entitled to my confidence there should be no secrets between us if you are to be my son-in-law there should be no afterclaps no asking for explanations you know pretty well what i am myself you shall hear all there is to be told about marie arnold's birth and parentage sir joseph if this revelation be in the least distressing to you i must beg you to let the matter rest i do not seek to pry into your history nor could a flaw of that kind in the record of your earlier life lessen the respect to which your character and position entitle you and which you must always receive unstintedly from me men of the world do not look severely upon such indiscretions pray let it pass no no it will be a relief to tell you i have been a most miserable man since my poor girl's death i am not superstitious but sometimes i think that her cruel death was a judgment upon me i ought to have recognized her as my daughter it would have been easy enough my dear wife being gone to assert a previous marriage sibyl would never have disputed the fact and marie could have been told to hold her tongue as to the date of her mother's death i ought to have given my girl her rightful position as my daughter not my heiress but my amply dowered daughter but i was a hypocrite and a coward i allowed myself to be talked about as the benefactor of, of an orphan i allowed my own flesh and blood to wear the livery of dependence well the story is short and common enough there was a pause and sir joseph walked the length of the terrace in silence lighted a cigar smoked a few whiffs and tossed it away impatiently arnold was an englishman who had worked in northern france for a good many years and had married a french wife she was from the south a lovely creature and had been married for only a year when her husband came to me as an overseer of ironworks which i had taken over from a bankrupt company 
There had been folly, ignorance, neglect, and dishonesty. Everything was in confusion, and Arnold, who knew the district and the men, and who was half a Frenchman by long habit, was very useful to me. He was a man of remarkable talent, and had been able to hold his own in various employments, but was a drunkard, and before he had been in my service three months, I was told that he beat his pretty young wife, and I was asked to interfere for her protection. Well, I called at their lodging, saw the wife, lectured the husband, held out hopes of promotion, and promised to do my very best for him if he would only keep away from the brandy-shop. He, on his part, promised amendment, and was very plausible, and praised the virtues of his wife. And naturally broke his promise before long, but in Penrith, whose languid air suggested he was listening ra rather out of politeness than from any warm interest in the story. Yes, he went from bad to worse. He was a valuable servant, knew the place and the plant, and where all had been chaos, his knowledge and experience were particularly useful. But he was not a fit man to be in a post of authority, and there were continual complaints. I threatened dismissal, but did not dismiss him. I saw his wife and tried to bring her influence to bear upon him. But she was not a clever managing woman. She was pretty and flung herself upon me for protection in her helplessness, complained of his violence, regretted her happy home in the South. Her people were poor, but they had always been kind. With her husband she was often in fear for her life. I urged her, thinking being as bad as this, to go back to her family. I offered to send her home, but she was timid and irresolute. If she were to leave George Arnold, he would follow and bring her back, and her position would be worse than ever. I could do nothing. Another pause, another cigar lighted and flung away, and then Sir Joseph went on hurriedly. The crisis came one summer evening, just as it was growing dark. Arnold had been drinking all day, drinking and leaving his work to be done by a subordinate. I was afterwards told that he had not been sober for a week. There was a desperate scene, and his wife fled from him, came to my lodgings, and asked me to shelter and protect her. Well, Lord Penrith, you know what usually happens in such a case as that. She stayed with me. It was rather for fear of him than love of me that she stayed, I believe. It was only with me that she felt herself safe. As the owner of the works, and as a rich man, I was looked up to, and she fancied herself safer with me than with anybody else. George Arnold came to my lodgings on the following day, only half sober, threatening and violent, and I flung him out of doors like a dog. What pity could I have for a man who had taken a young, lovely creature into his keeping, and then had ill-used her from the very beginning of their married life? I had no pity, no compunction where he was concerned, but it was an awful thing to hear the next morning that he had been killed on the railroad, and that it was more than likely that he had thrown himself in front of the train. 
no one knew that his wife had been under my roof at the time of his death i provided a new home for her in a village three miles from the works i did all i could to save her character and i believe i succeeded no one ever said that louison arnold was more to me than an ill-used woman whom i had befriended but she was fond of me per poor girl her heart turned to me in her loneliness and for half a year after her husband's death she and i were all the world to each other and all my leisure hours were spent with her i made her the promise which i suppose most men would have made in such circumstances i promised to marry her and i meant to keep my promise later on after the birth of her child but she had an unhappy disposition fretful exacting jealous and the bond of love had worn a very thin before my daughter was born the child's coming might have strengthened the tie and i might have kept my promise like an honest man but louison's conduct at this time was trivial and foolish i discovered a flirtation with one of my clerks i was very angry and took her back to her native town in provence at an hour's warning and established her with her child in the house which she inhabited for the rest of her life i allowed her a comfortable income and i paid for her daughter's education at a convent near the mother's home but i never saw her after my marriage love had long died out and i could have approached her almost as a stranger but i felt that to look upon the face of the woman who had been my mistress would it be, have been an offence against my wife end of chapter 16